Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word came from, but it seems that most folks have their own idea of what it is. Everything from run-down mobile homes full of meth heads to beautiful mountaintop views. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world and once stood over 30,000 feet into the air. They span the eastern North America from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley. I was born and raised in these very mountains. I, for one, know that they're a source of unending tales and adventure. I also know that the views of an Appalachian as to what happens outside these mountains is a bit different than one might think. Join me as uh, we take a journey through these old Appalachian mountains and beyond. I think you'll be surprised at how it goes. Welcome to Season 3 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Good friends, thank you so much for stopping by today. I'm finally back at it after a week of trying to figure out where all my show info went. Obviously, somebody don't know how to use their new computer that their wife and family got for them for Christmas. And I'm not going to name any names or tell you who the rascal is, but you could probably guess who he is. Thanks for sticking by me through the de- that debacle, but uh, today we're going to throw in one beautiful girl, two extravagant and prominent men, sprinkle it all over with jealousy and a family tree full of whack-a-doodle, and you got yourself a recipe that'll literally stir itself to the tune of somebody losing face. And I don't mean through embarrassment. I mean literally from a gunshot at an outdoor theater in the heart of New York City in front of about a thousand witnesses. And the moon bat that dropped a hammer didn't have a single sniff of shame or remorse. In fact, he was proud of it. Folks, grab something and hold on tight. And let me tell you all about this recipe for disaster that is so nutty and flaky that Gordon Ramsay himself would be impressed with it. Folks, our first ingredient to add to the mix from hell is 15-year-old Evelyn Nesbitt. She come to New York City in December of 1900 to help her modeling career that she'd started, you know, that had started taking off back in her hometown of Natrona, Pennsylvania, which sits in the Allegheny River Valley next to Pittsburgh along the edge of the Appalachian Mountains. Now, it didn't take but a few days after she got there for one of the city's most respected painters named James Carroll Beckwith to hire what he called his perfectly formed nymph. He hired her to pose twice a week in his 57th Street studio. Now, I realize it's 1900 and all, but I'm sure you're thinking the same thing I am. That would be that there's already something a little e about uh, the whole thing, right? But it wasn't long before Evelyn found herself uh, in great demand for modeling jobs with photographers and portrait painters. The girl that reporters called the Little Sphinx showed up on postcards and magazines like Cosmopolitan, Vanity Fair, Harper's Bazaar, and Ladies Home Journal. Now, Evelyn Nesbitt had become America's first pinup girl, and her looks managed to overcome any lack of actress training when in May of 1901, she got a role as a chorus girl in Broadway's most popular musical of the day called Floridora. Of course, it wasn't long until Evelyn's charms and good looks got the attention of local horn dog Stanford White. 
Dwight Stanford White was New York City's most famous architect. He designed landmarks that could be found all over the city, from his Washington Memorial Arch to the Bowery Savings Bank. Mr. White's Madison Square Garden back then was a huge entertainment center built in Spanish Renaissance style. It was the site to be for concerts, horse shows, exhibitions, and live theater. The building featured an elegant tower, which was the city's tallest at the time. Then it was topped off with something only a great horned dog of the day would dare try. It was a naked 13-foot statue of Diana shooting a bow and arrow. Diana was the Roman goddess of nature and fertility. Now, of course it was. Who else would be displayed on the tip-top of great horned dog architecture? Now, it wasn't long before the statue became an obsession of Reverend Anthony Comstock, who was the big anti-vice postal inspector who happened to have a pretty good following back in. So good of a following, in fact, that he managed to succeed in getting a naked goddess fitted with proper clothing, which promptly blew off the first time there came a windstorm. Then, being that something like that just couldn't go without some type of snub toward Mr. Comstock, Mr. White installed lights below Diana, which drew even more attention to the statue. Now you could see her all night long, too. Stanford White was described as a big, buff, lovable man with extraordinary talent. He also, unfortunately for him, had a love for good satire, and he used it. Now, satire ain't for everybody, folks. If you're going to use satire, you better know where the line is that you have to cross before it becomes downright smartass. Now, from what I could gather, Stanford White had a little bit of trouble knowing exactly where that line was with people, or either that or he just didn't care. Not to worry, though, most of the folks that he hung out with, you know, didn't seem to care either. If, if they did, they just didn't come back and hang out with him anymore, and, uh, well, that probably was the last thing on his list that he actually needed to worry about anyway. The band had a nearly insatiable appetite for young girls and wild floorboard rattling wall climbing sex. He was uh, so infatuated with it that back in 1887, he and a group of his fellow New York City libertines started what they called the Sewer Club. It was a place for drinking and pretty much taking advantage of young girls. Now we've heard the term libertine before, back in He Who Last Last episode a few weeks back. Now, in case you missed it, a libertine is a fancy word for a narcissistic woman abuser that thinks he's smarter than the good Lord himself. Now, girls, and I do mean girls, not women, seemed to find Mr. White's money and power irresistible. That enabled him to keep all the affairs that he could horn dog, horn dog up going to, you know, at the same time. His own family even said later on that he was all over the place sexually and that he was completely out of control. Now, the 46-year-old Stanford White went out poking around one night and finally talked another Florida chorus girl into setting up the young Evelyn Nesbitt to attend what she thought was a society luncheon at a posh New York City club. Now, instead, Evelyn's introduction to Mr. White came at lunch for just four folks at his West 24th Street apartment. Now, Evelyn said that she thought that he was terribly old, but she instantly thought that he was attractive because of his boundless playfulness. After lunch, Mr. White led Evelyn and her friend to an upstairs room where a red velvet swing hung from the ceiling. 
Now, folks, this just keeps get going downhill, don't it? Stanny, as Evelyn called him, talked her into the getting on the swing and gave her a few big pushes and then laughed out loud and clapped as Evelyn soared around the room, giggling. Over the next few weeks, Stanford White won over Evelyn's poor gullible mother, with Ms. Nesbitt convinced that the kind old Mr. White only had paternal-type interest in Evelyn's welfare. She gave her full blessing for Evelyn to attend a whole series of lunches and parties, all hosted by the famous architect. But good old Stanny didn't stop there. He was sending so much money to Ms. Nesbitt that she actually started referring to him as her benefactor. Evelyn said, yeah, Stanny and Mommy became the best of friends. And I bet they did. About two months after the, well, for the lack of a better term, relationship began, Mr. or Mrs. Nesbitt took a trip back home to Pittsburgh after Mr. White paid the fare and made all the necessary arrangements. Yeah, I bet he did. Before she left, Ms. Nesbitt made Evelyn promise to see nobody else other than Mr. White while she was gone. Good Lord, folks. A few days later, after Mama Nesbitt was gone, a cab requested by Mr. White rolled up and picked up Evelyn, who was expecting to be entertained at another fun party on the town. Instead of going to a party, the taxi cab dropped her off at Stanny's apartment. There wasn't any party, and there were no guests to be found. Now, according to Evelyn, Mr. White apologized, explaining that all of the other invitations were turned down, but they'd go ahead and make the best of it anyway. Now, here's where I see a picture in my brain of the Grinch holding the Christmas tree, getting ready to stuff it up the tree, and explaining to little Cindy Lou Who what he was doing. Ah, for the love of Mike. Before you know it, the champagne was flowing like water over Niagara Falls, and it didn't take long for Evelyn to pass out. When she woke up, she found herself laying naked on silk sheets in a mirrored canopy bed. A streak of blood ran down her inner thigh. As Evelyn started to cry, Mr. White passed her a kimono and said, Don't cry, kittens. It's all over. Now you belong to me. For the love of Mike. Took Evelyn a few days to sort out exactly what she was feeling about the whole thing. Finally, and <clears throat> this is the sad part, she went back to the one who she called her benevolent vampire. For the next six months, Stanny and Evelyn saw each other almost every day. <clears throat> and for her 17th birthday in December of 1901, Mr. White gave Evelyn a pearl necklace. No, now, get your mind out of them places. It was a real one, along with three diamond rings and a set of white fox furs. <clears throat> then Stanny put her on the red velvet swing again this time without a stitch of clothes on except for actually the pearl necklace she was given that day now in the late summer of 1902 a new and younger man entered Evelyn's life his name was John Barrymore yes that was Drew Barrymore's grandfather that was before he became one of the most acclaimed actors in history and became known as the profile at the time he was a lanky and frail-looking 21-year-old newspaper sketch artist when he met Evelyn and and at one of Stanny's big shindigs in the tower at Madison Square Gardens. Now, when Stanford White set off for Canada for a two-week fishing trip, young Mr. Barrymore, he was a bit of a horned dog himself, 
made his move, and soon the young couple's relationship became the focus of the town gossip. Now, when Ms. Nesbitt found out about her daughter's new love, I expect she saw dollar bills going down the toilet just before she leaped into action. Now, she went straight to Stanford White and asked him to try to talk some sense into her daughter. Of course, what with him being all concerned up about it and all, he was plumb happy to do just that. Now, being flanked up both sides by a two-prong attack from Stanny and Mama Nesbitt, Evelyn finally agreed to, to a halfway thrown together plan to trundle her off to a boarding school in New Jersey. You know, kind of like that show called Intervention where they whisk folks off away in a van and deliver them to a secure, undisclosed location to dry out. But meanwhile, yet another man had been watching Evelyn and Stanny, Stanley, both of them's ever move. Especially he'd been watching Stanny's ever move. Evelyn was by then the star of the show Wild Rose when entered the final ingredient of our death gravy in the form of a man using the name Mr. Monroe. Now, he was just one of the endless line of men who had a crush on Evelyn. This Mr. Monroe attended 40 performances of Wild Rose and sent Evelyn flowers after every performance. The flowers came with letters and offers for even bigger gifts. And he also <clears throat> asked for dates, which Evelyn politely declined. Mr. Monroe, in reality, was millionaire Harry K. Thaw from the Allegheny Mountains of Pennsylvania. <clears throat> Mr. Thaw's interest in Evelyn was pretty much rooted in his obsessive hatred of Stanford White. But Crazy Harry, as he was known, hated Stanny because he was so overtly successful. successful. Now, everything he, the man touched turned to gold. Then, uh, to go with that, every time Harry went to join one of the upscale New York country clubs, he'd walk in the front door where the first thing he'd see is a big gold plaque saying, designed by renowned architect Stanford White. Then he'd go in and be seated where he'd see old Stanny sitting there at a table waxing full satire to his entourage of little girls. Now, if by chance Mr. White wasn't there, well, there'd be a sign saying table permanently reserved for Stanford White. Now, this happened over and over again because Stanford White designed and built almost all of the clubs in New York in the day. And if Harry's ass wasn't already chapped enough, he considered Stanny to be a worthless piece of shit vapor that abused young girls despite the fact that he did exactly the same thing himself. That was when he was, wasn't was busy in a brothel somewhere actually lighting Cuban cigars with $100 bills and using a horse whip to literally spank the clothes plumb off of nearly every sex worker in the house every night. Yes, folks, really. In fact, it was Crazy Harry Thaw that first coined the term playboy in this country. Folks, this man was full barking moon bat. Now, in fact, when you hear me use a term like whack-a-doodle moon bat or nutball, I'm not making fun of folks who have a mental problem. Those folks, God bless them, have it hard enough. Believe me, I know I have family who've struggled with it since I was a little feller and since I can remember. But I'm talking about pe people, you know, who in all likelihood don't have anything wrong with them but the pure self-absorbed meanness. The ones that could pretty much play the Joker in a Batman movie without acting. Now... He once thought that a cab driver shorted him 10 cents and change, and he grabbed his shotgun and ran two blocks after the cab before he finally ran out of steam and went back home. Now, he used his trusty horse whip to beat the clothing off a bellhop at his hotel room because he thought the young man was too slow. It wasn't uncommon for Mr. Thaw to 
become obsessed with something and run it in, plumb into the ground and break it off. Now, he was the second son born to William and Mary Thaw. Now, William had been married once and had several children with his first wife. He and Mary had a son before Harry, who died just after birth. His death was ruled an accident because Mary rolled over on him and smothered him with her breasts. Now, this led to Harry pretty much being spoiled, completely rotten by his mother. His father, who was a railroad and coal baron, had tried to rein him in when he was at Harvard studying law, and he limited his allowance to a mere $6,000 a year. But when his father died, his mother upped it to 80000 Now, folks, that's about $2.8 million in today's money. That led to him flunking out of school and starting his run as a madman. When I looked at it, what appeared to me to be driving Mr. Thaw's love of Evelyn was his need to protect her from the evil Mr. White. Well, that and his contempt for Mr. White. In 1902, this Mr. Monroe finally warned Evelyn down and succeeded in putting together a lunch date with her. Now, he met her for the first time in a restaurant, or at a restaurant, where he immediately fell and fell to his knees and kissed the hem of her dress and pronounced that Evelyn was the prettiest girl in New York City. I reckon his obsession led to persistence and finally success. Now, today it would be led to a cell with a lock on it and a stack of stalking charges. But Mr. Thaw kept that persistence going while Dayton who he saw was his dream girl. He finally got all worked up enough to finally tell her who he really was. He told her that he was actually the very rich Harry Kendall Thaw of the Pittsburgh Thaws, you know, the ones with all the money. As he stood there with his perfect teeth shining through his smiling lips just like the Joker. Yeah. In April of 1903, Evelyn developed a, an acute appendicitis that needed emergency surgery. Of course, the Joker, uh, well, I mean Harry, rushed over to her hospital room and kissed her shaking hand as they wheeled her off to surgery. There wasn't a soul there who was surprised by that move. Since Harry had been dating Evelyn, he was pretty much about one step away from her nearly all the time. Now, if she expressed the smallest hint of interest in anything at all, it would show up all gift-wrapped in the front porch in just a few hours. During the operation, being the snake in the grass that he was, Harry did a little brown nosing on Mama Nesbitt by discussing Evelyn's future, what with him being all concerned and all. Now, that led to a few weeks later where Evelyn made what she called the worst mistake of her life. She and her mother, along with Harry, sailed from New York for an extended vacation in Europe. That was supposed to give Evelyn a break from all of the unending celebrity life back in New York long enough to heal properly. They holed up in a Paris hotel suite where Harry said would be the perfect place for Evelyn to finally get rest she needed. You know, Evelyn finally told the story of her champagne-riddled deflowering two years earlier to Stanford White's mirrored bedroom, or in Stanford White's mirrored bedroom. The whole time she was talking, Harry would shake, whimper, and finally pass out cold on the floor from shock of it all. Now, the story of that night stuck in Harry's crawl for years. A few weeks later, after Mama Nesbitt had sailed back to the United States, again leaving Evelyn all alone with another madman, Evelyn and Harry were staying in a <clears throat> rented castle on the outskirts of Austria. On her first night there, and while 
She was out cold asleep in her bedroom. <clears throat> Evelyn was suddenly yanked from her sleep by a bug-eyed, mad-as-hell, completely naked, crazy, hairy, waxing full whack-a-doodle. And he proceeded to rip the covers off and started whipping her legs with his trusty, lame, near-wore-out horse whip. Now, Harry then tore the nightgown off the poor, bleeding girl and proceeded to do even worse than what Stanny did, the whole time screaming about what Stanny did. Now, the moon must have been full that night, folks. Now, one would think that after a nightmare like that, taking place in, of all places, a Dracula-looking castle, that marriage between Harry and Evelyn would be completely out of the question. But the one would be wrong. Apparently, after two years of non-stop, unending stalking, a pocket full of sorry as well as money, which he also spent on Mum and Nesbitt, Crazy Harry was finally able to reel in his prize catch. And on April 5th, 1905, a private ceremony in Pittsburgh, Evelyn Nesbitt became Mrs. Harry K. Thaw. The couple moved into the huge, depressing Thaw family mansion that was also home to Harry's mother. Now, for the next 14 months, Evelyn spent her time feeling like a piece of prized silverware stuck in a box, only to be opened up, looked at, and stuffed right back in till the next time somebody felt like looking at a prized piece of silverware. Now we have all the ingredients together, it's time to turn up the pressure cooker, folks, and see what happens next. Stick around, I'll be right back. You're listening to Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend with Larry Bentley. Now, come the spring of 1906, Evelyn and Harry decided that they'd take them a little trip to England. Harry scheduled a June 28th sailing on a German luxury liner, because, of course, nothing but luxury, don't you know? From the port of New York, <clears throat> the plans were made to spend a week in New York City before heading off across the Atlantic. No, folks, I don't have any idea what Evelyn was thinking about heading back to Europe with Dracula again, but... Anyway, <clears throat> around 6 o'clock on June 25th, Evelyn left her suite at the Lorraine Hotel on 5th Avenue and met Harry at a nearby bar where he'd already had three or four good strong belts while he was waiting on her. And uh, in typical Harry fashion, he paid the $3 bar tab with a $100 bill. Then the happy couple high-stepped it for a Cafe Martin, which was located on the top floor of Stanford White's masterpiece, Madison Square Gardens topped off with the still-naked Diana shining in the floodlights for all to see. Now, somewhere during the courses of a dinner that I know that I couldn't even figure out which fork to use on, Evelyn was surprised to see Stanford White, who was supposed to be out of town. He waltzed right into the restaurant along with his son, like they owned the place. In spite of the near-record heat of the day, Evelyn said that she went cold with fear, of what her husband might do if he saw Stanny sitting over there talking satire and laughing it up like he always did. Now, seeing the <clears throat> color drain out of his wife's face, Harry asked her if anything was wrong. She scribbled a note which said the bee was here, but he left. Now, the bee in the letter was how she and Harry referred to Stanny. It stood for bastard. Now, after reading the note, Harry kept his emotions pretty much under control. At least it looked like it from the outside. It looked like he was going to get out of there without making any kind of a scene, too. That was until after dinner when he went and got his straw hat from the cloak attendant, and Harry slammed the hat on his head with such force that it cracked the brim. 
Now, as they left the restaurant, Harry announced to the whole room that he'd bought tickets on for the new musical Mamuel Sh- Mam- Mamselle Sh- Champagne. I don't speak French, folks. I have to deal with it, I guess. But <clears throat> it was playing in Madison Square Garden's open-air rooftop theater. Now, sounds to me like he was telling Stanny to meet him out in the street at high noon. And out on the street being in the musical, it's a musical in this case, but I guess that's what Stanny thought too, because sometime during the show, Harry found out that the renowned architect Stanford White planned to catch part of the show later. And sure enough, witnesses reported seeing Mr. Thaw pacing around the rear of the theater like a caged animal. Shortly after 11 o'clock, when the show being nearly over, over, <clears throat> Stanny swantered in and took his customary permanently reserved seat at a small table five rows back from the stage. It took Harry a few minutes to see him sitting up there being all Stanford Whitish. Crazy Harry didn't really take notice of Stanny when he walked in, but once he noticed, he stood up with a glassy-eyed look on his face and that was so red you could have lit a cigar on him. Now, Evelyn suggested that they might just want to go ahead and leave, and they started heading toward the elevator. Evelyn should have dragged him out of there as fast as she could go, but she stopped for a second to chat with a friend, and that's when Harry slipped away. As a line of chorus girls sang, I could love a thousand girls, with Stanny sitting there singing right along with them, the audience heard a burst of gunfire that ended with two quick shots. Now, Evelyn turned around and found no Harry and knew exactly what happened she yelled he shot him as bits of stanny's face and his life's blood poured onto the clean heavy or white heavy starched tablecloth of his overturned table that he designed harry thaw screamed at the top of his lungs i did it because he ruined my wife he had it coming to him mr white had been shot twice in the head and face and once in the shoulder the first shot was Fired from a distance of about 12 feet after Crazy Harry made his beeline over to Stanny's table and then whipped out his revolver from under his coat. And the second and third shots came from even closer range, maybe two or three feet. Chaos immediately erupted, as you'd expect, when there's a nutball with a gun busting caps in the room. Members of the audience screamed and headed for the exits. Meanwhile, Mr. L. Lawrence manager of the show jumped on a table and commanded it to show go on yelling go on playing bring on the chorus now, i guess the show must go on even with somebody in the middle of a death flop right in front of the stage but as <clears throat> mr thaw was led away by poli- a police officer evelyn told him now look at the fix you're in harry said <clears throat> it's all right dear i probably saved your life at three o'clock the next morning, Mr. Thaw was charged with murder and dragged off to Tombs Prison and locked in a cell, where his mother immediately brought in his custom brass bed and bed furnishings along with a small dining table so his cell could properly be decorated. Now, Evelyn managed to slip the press and spent two sleepless nights holed up in an apartment of a friend in the theater district. Meanwhile, the city's rumor mill went nuts and Thomas Edison Studio worked overtime to rush a film version of the rooftop murder to local theaters, which could, of course, be viewed for a nominal fee. Now, the original strategy of District Attorney William J. Ger- William T. Jerome was to have Mr. Thaw declared legally insane and shipped off to a mental asylum and uh, held out of his hair. 
the state would save a whole bunch of money, and the idea was pretty much consistent with the dimwit who shot his victim in the face in front of a thousand witnesses and then went around bragging about it every chance he got and got somebody backed in their corner that'd listen to him. Now, Mr. Thaw's attorney, Louis Delafield, agreed, thinking that it be the only sure way his client would avoid the electric chair that New York planned to get its money worth, money's worth out of. Of course, then came the curveball that goes with defending a whack-a-doodle. <clears throat> when they explained it all to Harry Thaw, wouldn't you know it, he wanted absolutely no part of the insanity plea and called his attorney a traitor for even suggesting it. Now, three weeks after Mr. Delafield took the case, Crazy Harry fired him, saying that he looked forward to his trial and his chance to expose the whole gaggle of perverts who preyed on young girls and deserved nothing less than having their faces blasted off, too. I suppose beating the clothing off of sex workers and sexually assaulting a minor didn't count as perverted in his book of the ways and means of life. Folks, jury selection began in January of 1907. After questioning 600 prospective jurors, a jury of 12 men was finally seated. Meanwhile, the whole Thaw family, what consisted of a long line of wackadoodles and Harry's mother's side, wasn't about to stomach anything to do with permanent insanity. They were set on proving through their own team of high-dollar mouthpieces that Harry had experienced what was called then a brainstorm, <clears throat> which was a brief bout of temporary insanity that could be expected of most any man put through the stretches of what happened to his wife. Now, it was a long shot at best, but better than Harry be fried like a hamburger than folks to think that any part of the Thaw family were insane. All of that, and not a soul was yet to ask Evelyn if she was okay after enduring what she did at the hands of both egomaniacs. But <clears throat> when the trial opened, on February 4th, under Justice James Fitzgerald, the prosecution delivered a seven-minute opening statement, offered two hours of testimony outlining the bare <clears throat> events surrounding the rooftop murder, and then rested its case. They included Coroner Timothy Cahane, testifying that Mr. White died instantly from a cerebral hemorrhage as a result of a pistol wounds to the head, face, and uh, one in the arm, of course. They Back that all up with a barrage of eyewitnesses who saw it all go down. Now, <clears throat> after a recess, defense attorney John B. Gleason gave his opening statement as Harry Thaw sat with his eyes fixed on the table in front of him. Mr. Gleason said that the defense will primarily rest on the evidence that the defendant shot Mr. White's face off under the delusion that he was an agent of providence, meaning that somebody had to go slay that damn dragon and it might as well be him. Now, Mr. Gleason said that Crazy Harry had for three years been suffering from a disease of the brain which culminated in the killing. He blamed the insanity on two things, hereditary and heredity and stress. Now, he promised jurors that they would learn from Evelyn's own lips about the conversation she had with Mr. Thaw in June of 1903 that would account for his obsession with Mr. White. Now, before anything else could happen, and I'm sure if you go dig deep down enough <clears throat> in the rabbit hole, you'll find out exactly why Mr. Gleason up and withdrew his defense attorney as defense attorney. Now, I expect it was because he was hovering a bit too close to Harry being insane and the whole family liked. <clears throat> then in 
instep Delphin DeMoss uh, coming all the way from San Francisco. Now, he was famous for never having lost a case in his life and wasn't about to start now. With the appointment, the defense strategy changed to one much more Harry Thaw's liking. Now, instead of focusing on Harry's alleged madness, <clears throat> Mr. Delmas worked to make the jury hate Harry's victim so much that they could forgive his client's murder. Nobody Mr. Delmas knew was in a better position to make the jury despise Sanford White than Harry's wife, Evelyn Nesbitt Thaw. Now, at first, Evelyn was nervous, or completely sick, actually, about the thought of revealing her deepest, darkest secrets in public, but she finally agreed to once she realized that Harry was going to ride the lightning if she didn't, and might still even if she did, but it was his only hope. Now, the public was all riled up and ready for the testimony of Evelyn, who took the stand on February 8th. Now, in two hours of tearful testimony, she told the crowd that hushed went to hush courtroom her version of the events of the night of the murder in response to questioning from mr delmas evelyn said that she was not a bit interested in the play and suggested it harry to harry that they leave early after harry dis- disappeared while she was talking to another theater goer on the way to the exit she heard gunfire and said i think he shot him now Evelyn fought back tears as she told what happened to her on the evening of drinking champagne in Stanford White's apartment. While Harry sat there crying, sweating like a Pentecostal preacher stuck in a porn movie and chewing his fingernails off to the quick. Now, then came the defense's surprise when they introduced the affidavit from New York City's leading self-appointed defender of decency, the Reverend Anthony Comstock. Now, Reverend Comstock stated that he last saw Mr. Thaw about three weeks before he shot Mr. White's face off. Harry was in a desperate state, like a man who was well-nigh frantic. Now, he said to me, Wildly, you must keep you must keep on. You must stop this man. He must be stopped now at once. And that's about the time that the prosecution realized that things weren't looking good for him, and they started thinking, now, well, they better start trying to prove that crazy Harry was actually insane, which was a really good thing for Harry, whether he liked it or not. Now, he didn't. Mr. Delmas immediately objected to the attempt resulting in a near fight breaking out in the courtroom, and that led to the prosecution appointing what they called a lunacy commission to have Harry Thaw checked out. Now, the first days of the commission's hearings included an extensive mental and physical examination of Mr. Thaw. They then questioned everybody that they could find that knew Harry, the commission concluded that Harry K. Thaw was and is sane and was not and is not in a state of idiocy, imbecility, or lunacy, or even insanity. And Harry and Mr. Delmas were tickled in the, as the result, and the trial picked up right back where it left off. Now, on April 8th, Delphin Delmas delivered an over-the-top, over-dramatic closing statement that just kept dragging on. Perry Mason and Ben Matlock both would have been proud of that one. But <clears throat> closing for the state, Prosecutor Jerome closed for the, for the state, and uh, then just the deliberations began at about 5.15. On April 10, 1907, after more than 47 hours of arguing, the jury returned to the courtroom to announce that it was hopelessly deadlocked, and Justice Fitzgerald declared a mistrial and dismissed the jury one down.
second trial was shorter, less sensational, and attracted a lot less attention and was more predictable in its outcome. Mr. Dumas <clears throat> told the Thaw family that they're not going to win an outright trial, so let's get Harry sent off to an insane asylum, then worry later about proving him insane enough to be let out, or sane enough to be let out. They <clears throat> tried to prove that folks didn't call him Crazy Harry for nothing, and that mental illness ran up the family tree like poison oak. Now, District Attorney Jerome, again heading the prosecution, fought that as hard as he could, could but the next day the jury announced its verdict. We find the defendant not guilty on the ground of insanity at the time of the commission of his act. Now, Justice Dowling dismissed the jury and took from his desk a memorandum and began reading it. Dowling declared that Mr. Thaw's discharge would be dangerous to the public safety and ordered him sent to a Matawan State Hospital for the criminally insane until thence discharged by due course of law. Harry Thaw, apparently expecting to be set free after the jury's verdict, got extremely mad when he heard that. They slapped a straight jacket on him and dragged him off. And seven years later, in June of 1915, the jury convened in the Supreme Court of New York to determine whether Harry Thaw was now sane enough to be released from Matawan. Apparently, they thought he was because two days later, Harry Thaw walked out a free man. Harry's marriage to Evelyn survived a few more months. I guess it was easier being married to him when he was the hell away from you. And in 1917, Harry severely whipped the 19-year-old boy and was pounced on, arrested, and dragged back to the insane asylum where he stayed until 1924. He would be released and go on to drop over from a massive heart attack in 1947. Now, after her divorce from Harry, <clears throat> Evelyn married her dance partner, Jack Griff Clifford, but the marriage got dashed on the rocks of life in a short matter of months. But she never remarried. In 1955, a film entitled The Girl on the Red Velvet Swing starred Joan Collins as Evelyn Nesbitt, and it managed to rekindle interest in, Ms. in the Nesbitt White Thaw story for just a little while. At the time the, of the movie's release, Evelyn was living quietly as a 74-year-old sculptor in Los Angeles. Now, Evelyn died in 1967 of natural causes at the age of 84, and she was living in an assisted living facility. Now, if anybody in this entire story was the one who was hurt the most by the whole mess, it was Evelyn. She never gained anything from the movie, nor did she get anything from the Thaw family when she divorced Crazy Harry. She died as a woman of meager means and was, by golly, happier than she'd ever been in her life. But, folks, I hope you enjoyed our story today. If you have, please rate and review the podcast, and don't forget to subscribe or follow on whatever podcatcher you're listening on. Come on over to Facebook group Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend Podcast where we talk Appalachian or anything else you'd like to talk about. I'll be back real soon with another Appalachian Murder Mystery or Legend, and I will see you then. <laughs>